Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Art of Space Engineering. I am your host, Sarah Rogers. So this episode is the second half of a roundtable discussion with my friends Craig Knobloch and Vivek Chaco on developing the flight software for the Phoenix CubeSat. In this discussion, we'll detail our experiences with systems level testing, recruitment, and team dynamics. And if you haven't listened to it already, part one includes a really great discussion on our system architecture and the lessons learned on software development. So go and check that out if you're interested in learning more about the flight software side of Phoenix. Because this is the second half of the discussion, I don't want to make this intro too long. So with that, let's jump back into the discussion and explore our adventures in systems level testing and what it was like handling this project as full-time students while our classes slowly killed us on the inside. All right, so we've we've talked a lot about like the the general um, kind of top level architecture, how how we were structured and how we went about um, developing things. But but now I, I do want to delve a little bit into the more specific um, development challenges that we had while we were working on Phoenix. Um, so, in kind of segueing off of off of the end of the the last one. Um, Another one of the, the biggest challenges that really hit us with development was how do we actually make Phoenix a full cohesive system? How do we how do we get to that minimum functionality point? And for us, you know, since we had never done anything like this before, it was really important for us to not just go down the list of our requirements, but to actually just start with small chunks and just really see everything start to come together and track progress towards our mission objectives based on that. So the way that we kind of got around actually making Phoenix Phoenix was when we set schedules, our milestones were defined as very specific demos. Um, and so we would work towards a demo to do to demonstrate some some large component of that functionality and then continue to build off of that. So for example, our very first demo was take a picture and downlink it. Full functionality includes other things like pointing, um, sending schedules. But just to start out, we said, okay, we just want to take a picture with the camera and then send it to the ground station. Um, Now, that sounds very simple, but that incorporates a lot of things. Like you have to be able to turn on the camera. You have to be able to take a picture, get that picture off of the camera's memory, store it on the, the OBC's uh, RAM, so that way we can then downlink it. And then it incorporates the actual downlink process itself, which is one of the most critical parts, uh, as we've said before, of, of um, the spacecraft is having a very robust and reliable link. And there's a lot that goes into just getting a packet from point A to point B. You have to have, you have to follow a specific um, amateur radio protocol. We used Axe 25. Um... Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so there's a lot that, that really goes into just making that thing work. So we started there and then worked on adding other components along the way. So the next thing was pointing and all of the commands that were associated with just getting our ADCS system to orient the CubeSat at a specific ground target. Um, and then after that, we added things like scheduling, uh, telemetry collection, uh, GPS time updates, 
And so all of those became little demos along the way. And once you add all of those up, then you have this full working system. That's really what allowed us to kind of organize um, the actual development process and have a very like well-defined system and method and, and milestones to go through in order to actually complete um, complete all of the requirements and get Phoenix to where it needed to go. Right. So you mentioned something about, uh, you know, the, the, the demos that we had, right? So uh, one of the demos that uh, you mentioned was the uh, taking a picture and downlinking that picture. And since I personally worked on the communications bit, uh, what we as a team needed to do was take the entire demo and break it up into smaller demos. Because like Sarah mentioned, uh, this taking a picture and downlinking does incorporate a lot of functionality and uh, to get everything right in one demo in one shot is just impractical, right? So uh, we broke it up into really small chunks. We started off and we said, okay, what's the first thing that we need to do uh, to reach that point? And the first thing that we needed was to get a single packet downlinked. Uh, and that was just a random packet that was generated by the OBC and we had the ground station set up and we were like, okay, if we can send that packet, we can receive that packet and we are able to read the contents, we can go from there. And the next, next challenge would be to take a packet from the ground station and then uplink that, you know, and have the OBC basically just print that packet. So we, the idea was we broke it up into these smaller little segments and that sort of helped us go closer to uh, what the target was. But uh, coming back to the development of the protocol, it poses a really interesting challenge because the, the data transfer speed is very low. And uh, in order to downlink an image at, at the speed, it would take almost seven to eight minutes. And a typical overhead pass is about three, four minutes, sometimes more, sometimes less. And I'm talking about the part, the pass, which is actually usable because anything below 30 degrees is often not usable at all. So we're talking about a very limited time and we need to ensure that we are able to download the entire image. So uh, the question was, how do we go about that? Uh, so we did a lot of brainstorming in, in the team and we were like, how do we come up with a solution that that specifically targets this issue. So, so whatever data we get uh, is still usable. So what we did was eventually we had to like break up the entire image into tiny chunks and download all of that and keep a track of how many chunks are there in that image and uh, you know, figure out, okay, so we got 90 out of hundred chunks. We just need 10 more. So the next time the spacecraft comes, we just request those 10 chunks and download that off. So things like this, we did come up with solutions, but I think the whole approach where we had specific demos and we broke it up into smaller demos was pretty critical to uh, making progress as we go and not have uh, a goal that was a little too difficult to uh, achieve, uh, but rather have smaller goals that were easily to, easy to implement, you know, show progress as we went along. Right, so on that demo, the uh you know take a picture and downlink a demo i mean like you guys are saying there's a lot of pieces of that demo right and from vivek's discussion you know we he focused a lot on the uh the communication side um and uh we're also there's also the the picture side so um 
I was the developer for the camera for most of it. I know that uh, Cody took over um, quite a bit of the development. I think it was passed around a lot, but uh, I think I wrote a lot of the, the core um, software. And I remember um, when uh, Danny, our mentor, right? Is that yeah. was his title? Okay. So Danny says, uh, you know, just, just take a picture. So I remember listening to that. And by the way, he's talking about, you know, take a picture and download. And his time frame for that was a week. Um, and it was like, a week? Like, he's like, yeah, take a picture. Download in a week. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I don't know why. I was like, okay, I'll do that. But for some reason, I just got in a mood. And I was like, I'm going to do this. So, uh. I, oh, I think that was like a sixty or eighty hour effort through the course of that week, right? And I was a full time so student. You, you like tallied it up, and I, I think it was actually like sixty four to seventy hours or something like that. It was nuts. Um, yeah, I was a a full time student, like a, like going through Monday, you know, and Tuesday, and and all that stuff. It was like, eh, I'll just push that assignment off. Ah, I won't go to class, you know. Um, somehow my flex my schedule was flexible enough where i could actually do that and that was good but like um you know <laughs> it was just insane the amount of work that i had just, just kind of shove off into the corner to, to get that thing done um and you know that development process you know it, it sounds so easy you know just take a picture what is that like one command but like sarah was saying earlier it's not just take a picture right it's is Cameron? There's take the picture. There is um, identify where on the camera the picture is. Get the picture off the camera, which that sounds really easy, but that was the most painfully difficult part because the um, the picture getting process wasn't like oh, uh, like how you interact with your digital camera on your computer. You know where like the the folder opens up and you just get the pictures out. It was there are a bunch of memory blocks that are accessible via memory addresses. And it's not like you access one memory block and then you get the whole picture out. No, it's you figure out how big the picture is from some other memory block. And then you and then where the picture is on, on which memory block and you go to that memory block. And then you, you call from that memory block plus every other memory block that has components related to that picture. And then you piece it all together. So that was a pretty big effort. And then there was, writing it to the RAM, you know, in a, in a cohesive file and deleting it from the camera. A word of warning to um, anybody who has to delete stuff on hardware, be very, very careful. Please learn from my mistakes and read the documentation very, very thoroughly. I thought I was reading the documentation thoroughly. I wasn't reading it thoroughly enough. So in this camera, you know, you were interacting with memory addresses directly. So to pull stuff off, you interact with memory addresses directly and to delete it, you interact with, with memory addresses directly, except when you are pulling it off, um, you are going in blocks of, of bytes, right? So like if each memory address held four bytes of data, then you would go to memory address one, pull four bytes off, go to memory address five, pull four bytes off, etc. So it, the documentation referred to these components as blocks, 
but it also referred to, um, you know, I'm not me remembering this inter terribly correctly, but like there was, there was just something that I didn't look at quite thoroughly enough to really understand what it was talking about. And I mixed up um, the terminology. So I read that to delete image zero, let's say, then you would go to its location and delete from there, right? But I read that as you give the delete command the image number, right? So you could get an image number from the camera and then you could feed the camera the delete command for a certain image number, but it wasn't the image number. It was a memory address number. So I told me thinking to tell the camera to delete snapshot zero, I told the camera to delete memory address zero. And in devices that have their own firmware running on them, uh, it's not always set in stone where the firmware is going to be, but in the, in the camera's case, the firmware was at memory address zero. Well, memory address zero <laughs> through like 20 or something, but you know, you delete one piece of the firmware and the rest of it's not gonna work. So I had gotten, it was like, oh man, it was like 50 hours into this effort and I'd gotten the picture taking, the downloading, all that stuff was working swimmingly. Um, and then I went to test out a delete thing and all of a sudden I can't talk to the camera anymore. I, I don't know what's wrong. Like all my code has worked so far. All my tests are working and they're just not working anymore. <laughs> Um, and that was, that was a good seven or eight hours trying to figure that one out. And, you know, that goes into the night and me and Cody are trying to figure it out. And Sarah comes in the lab at seven in the morning. I'm like, Sarah, I don't know what to do. Um, um, so yeah, that was a, that was a very painful learning experience, but, um, it was at least a cheap learning experience, both in cost to get the thing repaired and time because we had a, um, we had a flight unit that we could use, right? So we used the flight unit until the engineering unit was repaired. Yeah, I do remember that. We uh, we sent the camera back to Fleur in a Pelican case with a get well card that we had. We had everyone on the team sign. Uh, that was that was pretty great. I remember um, being a student and like not having like my head wrapped around like the uh, what was expensive and what wasn't. So I was on. I was on an email chain with uh, Fleur support, you know, where I learned that, okay, I deleted the firmware <laughs> and I was like, okay, how much is that going to cost to fix? Cause like, Sarah, how expensive was this camera? Camera was nine grand. Oh, okay. Well, right. the, the flight, okay. So the flight model was nine grand. The EM mm -hmm. was six grand because it was oh. used. Oh, we got a discount. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so I had broken this $6,000 piece of equipment and, um, um, but, you know, on these projects, $6,000 isn't actually all that much money. You know, it is to me, but it's not like a gargantuan amount of money. But the point is, is to fix it, you know, I was in the, the email chain with Fleur Support and they were like, oh, it's, it'll be like, you know, $200. And, uh, you know, in my student, you know, not a lot of money head, I'm like $200. Um, and so Judd comes in. And he's like, hey, what's the word on the camera? And I'm like, oh, I mean, like, we can get it fixed, but like, it's going to be expensive. And he's like, well, how expensive? And I'm like, 200 bucks? He's like, that's not expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or something like, oh, that's not that bad. Yeah. 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 
So to, to kind of finish out the, you know, the demo number one of taking picture and downlinking at one thing that we weren't immediately aware of, um, but is really important to, to consider when you're, you're working on stuff like this and you have to transfer data from one, from point A to point B is really making sure like you understand how long is that process even supposed to take and is the method that you've taken, is it efficient enough to allow it to get there in as fast of a time as it possibly can. So, you know, going back to what Vivek was saying earlier, you know, we've only got like a four, three to four minute pass where we can actually have reliable communications with the spacecraft. And so when we first started transmitting packets, like like Vivek was saying, it took us seven minutes. No, it took us longer than that. It took us like yeah. 15 minutes to downlink an entire image. You know, then we actually calculated it. Okay, so this is our bod. This is the size of the image. How long is that actually supposed to take? And it was not supposed to be 15 minutes. I think at the end, it came down, was it three minutes or five minutes that it took to actually transmit a full image back to the ground? But it was, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot less. Yeah, so so there were several different issues that we had to fix in order to optimize the entire uh, data flow. What we noticed, like initially when we started off, we just were like, okay, this is the packet. We just want to shoot it out and let the ground station do its thing. The issues were with how fast we were sending the packets down to the ground station. And one might think that the idea is to send it as fast as possible. uh, But then that comes with a downside because the ground station is able to process certain number of packets per second. And if you overshoot that, it basically puts that into the buffer and then eventually lose those packets. So in turn, what was happening is that we sent out way too many packets than the uh, ground station could handle and then eventually had to re-request those missing packets. So taking it, was, it, it took longer than ex- expected. So I think the entire idea was to, to get into these details and trying to experiment with uh, varying every single parameter. So we came up with graphs and charts that told us, okay, if we keep increasing this, uh, the time between packets, uh, then there's this, there's this one point where it gives us minimum duration for data transfer, and then it just shoots up from there. So trying to come up with that optimal uh, settings was very key. And I think the takeaway here should be that it, I think it comes back same to the fact that, you know, you need to test it enough to ensure that have you come to the most optimal solution. And uh, in order to work your way towards it, uh, you might need to tweak several different parameters because uh, it's not just the code that is in play, but also the fact that you have different hardware that are communicating with each other. So is everything working optimally or is there something that you could change in order to make sure that all of them communicate with each other in the best possible uh, way? Continuing on with testing, in addition to setting smaller milestones that are achievable in a shorter amount of time, it's also really important, and and this motto you will hear all the time in the aerospace industry, it's really important to test as you fly. Test as, as close to your flight configuration as possible and as soon as possible. Um, even if you don't, you're not fully there immediately, get as close as you possibly can because you're going to Everything is an iterative process and you're going to find things along the way. We found a lot of things along the way as well as, as we tried to actually, you know, connect uh, 
connect our components together um, with all of the flight interfaces and just operate Phoenix as if it were in space. And this is especially important when it comes to plugging things in together. Uh, so when you're developing your software, develop it on the hardware itself. Uh, get as close to having your OBC talking to all of your components as possible um, because that's your flight system. That's how you're going to find any idiosyncrasies that you have in your setup. Um, one particular example of this is was actually an electrical issue that we, we found out in the process of working towards this first demo of take a picture and downlink it. So in the beginning, everyone was was developing and, and you know to, to work things in parallel because we only had one OBC to, to really develop off of. We everyone was working on components independently. So um, like Craig was plugged into the FLIR camera over the USB port and was developing code for that. Um, and we had this, and for I2C devices, we had this Aardvark I2C adapter, which would plug into the PC-104 header of, of our components. And then you would plug that, the USB end of that, into your computer and you could develop and test code and see if it worked. And so we had this thing set up where for um, our EPS and ever, anything else we were working with on I2C, we could run our code and it would communicate just fine with the hardware. And so we thought that we understood the system, we had this working code, um, and we, we were doing it this way because we didn't, at the time, we didn't fully understand how to upload code to the OBC. And so we were working both of these things in parallel in order to just get as much progress done as possible. Um, but because we did it that way, um, we didn't realize an electrical issue that we had with our setup. So it, it turns out that our system didn't incorporate an I2C pull-up resistor anywhere. So this was even when all of the boards were plugged in uh, to our flat sat and all of the interfaces were connected. Um, it turns out that, so none of these boards had I2C pull-up resistors because like our, our EPS and our battery system were uh, developed by Clydespace. And our AX100 and our OBC were developed by Gonspace. So we were using different vendors for different components. And um, going back through and looking at the rest of their systems, Gomspace had incorporated pull-up resistors on their EPS and Clydespace had incorporated the, their pull-up resistors with their onboard computer. So in both cases, since you know you have to deal with compatibility issues between using different vendors, and this was, was not something that occurred to us when we were originally bought hardware or even when we first started working with it, um, and the only reason we noticed this was because we had the aardvark plugged in and everything worked fine. And then when we unplugged it, uh, it wasn't working fine. And mm -hmm. we realized that, you know, really the only thing that was different between those two setups was the fact that the aardvark included pull-up resistors in it and those resistors weren't in our, weren't anywhere in our system design. So, right. um, to get around that, luckily we had an interface board, which was used to kind of facilitate some hardware compatibility issues that we had in our system and also incorporate ways for cable routing, power routing, um, uh, access port features like our, our USB connection. So we could 
program, we could upload software and, uh, you know, look at the command line interface. Um, once Phoenix was fully assembled, um, RBF features all that jazz. So we were able to incorporate them there and that solved the issue. Um, but that just kind of harkens back to why it's so important to just test like you fly. And if you're developing anything, just develop it directly on whatever it is you're working with. Um, continuing off of testing as you fly. So there's the hardware side of things. And then there's also the software side of things. And it's important that while you're going through your, your system level development and testing to always be thinking of how do I operate this from space? If I can't, you know, cause once it's in space, like it's, it's gone and you don't have this, when you're testing in the lab, you have this very convenient command line uh, and you can look at messages going, you know, coming from the spacecraft and debug things that are happening. You see errors when they, when they occur and you know exactly where to go to fix something. When it's in space, you don't have any of that. You can't see what's going on. Um, and so if you are uplinking a schedule file or executing a command, how on earth do you even know that things are going right? And so it's, it's really important to consider that as you're going through your development process. So the, the other side of tests you fly is, is really more oriented towards operations and that, that has a very uh, important root in your software development process and, and what features you add to it. So in testing as we flew, um, we ended up incorporating a, a bunch of additional software level features and ground commands that made things a lot easier for us to work with Phoenix once it was in orbit and we couldn't touch it uh, at all. We reached a point where we were like, okay, we should be at a point where we don't look at the terminal at all and figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think that was very interesting because that, that opened up a lot of things that we missed during development, important messages and important signals that uh, tells us about the state of the spacecraft. Like uh, we realized that we need more of more logs, you know, so we, we sort of expanded our status logging system. We increased the number of uh, messages the spacecraft sent out. And I think that's the key to starting to test as close to the way you fly is that you get an idea of what it would look like when it's out in space and what mm -hmm. we would need uh, in order to debug any issues that might come across. And um, yeah, the other area it really helped was, was in maintenance. So mm -hmm. one of the things that, that we really worked on in testing as we flew is trying to understand, okay, you know, so Phoenix is only overhead for this small four minute duration. And so if we see something going wrong or we need to request information, um, what kinds of features should we be implementing into the software to allow us to conduct routine maintenance and make sure the satellite is, is operating okay? So like these are things like you know, sending packets to reset the OBC so that way it, it starts back up if there's an issue or if the clock gets out of sync sending being able to set the time on the obc from the ground like that's that's so important for scheduling because all of our schedules were working based off of whatever the time on the obc was if our clock got off we may never take a picture of um, a particular city target um, even things like requesting files seeing what files were in there uh, in the first place right. 
and being able to delete files from the ground if necessary. All of these things were uh, what we found we needed to incorporate once we actually started testing and um, trying to, to think about, okay, if we only have this limited amount of time, what can we possibly add that will make this easy for mission operations and allow us to keep Phoenix healthy? I think even like, I, I remember uh, when it came to the heartbeat, we had like one packet uh, worth of data that we uh, needed to get through the heartbeat. And I think we spent a lot of time trying to f- nail down exactly what we need in that uh, 200 bytes or something of information that would be critical. I think we spent a lot of time figuring out, okay, <clears throat> we need the battery temperature, the battery voltages that were like the given. And then what mm-hmm. else would we need? We would also need say the number of antennas that were deployed and stuff like that. So I think these I think like they say, the devil is is in the details. I think all the details get really uh, clear to you uh, when you start the day in the life testing. Before that, it's usually revolving around uh, what my objectives are. And that starts at a very high level. But when you get down to testing, you discover that, okay, my objectives are these, but there are these tiny little things that I need to be able to get there. Oh, yeah. I think the thing that really gave us a good sense of that was when we did the overnight test. So we did this really awesome, I don't know, this really insightful test. It was it it was pretty cool. And we we learned a lot from it, um, where we stayed overnight in uh, ISTB4 with the the building that we were developing in. And we camped out on the roof of this building. so and just stayed there all night and just tested doing typical operations with all of the hardware assembled all of our flight interfaces plugged in Um, now the reason we went to the roof was because we wanted to be able to get a gps signal Um, and we were developing in the basement of that building so there was no gps signal we could just get telemetry from the gps but we had no way of of really seeing it get the time from GPS satellites and then properly update the clock on the onboard computer. So we spent all night just testing all of this out. And that's where we, we really got to understand. We understood more of the, the features we needed. So like the, the maintenance operations and also even just like how to conduct uh, an, a pass operationally. I think it's important to point out here that, you know, the way we structured the whole thing was, uh, uh, literally day in the life in the sense that we started off with, okay, uh, we are going to have a pass every one hour and the pass is going to be three minutes long. And uh, we had that entirely timed out that the first pass would just be get the heartbeat. Second pass would just be uh, upload a schedule file with third pass being take an image, both pass being download an image. So I think we put the structure into the whole day in the life test, which was what gave us the insight that we were looking for. I think it was frustrating about the roof test was because we, you know, we wanted like a very uh, methodical way of figuring out that process of, okay, what maintenance tasks are absolutely necessary to do before we actually uplink and execute a schedule. Um, So things like making sure we had the most recent heartbeat. Um, We also had a feature to request the last five minutes of data so we could you know, see how things had been trending and if it was yeah. safe to, to actually upload that. Um, getting used to, you know, quickly looking through telemetry logs as well to, to see if anything was going wrong. Doing, doing tests like that, it's really how we got like a feel for what 
the operations phase was actually going to be like and you know like what not just like in terms of what you do but even like what mental states you're in like when you only have a limited four minute window you're stressed and there's there's pressure to make sure that you are able to optimize that whole amount of time that you have access to the satellite um and so you know part of it is like you have to learn how to manage that you have to recognize the you have to recognize how you respond to being in these situations and get used to get used to operating like that so the more the more you can do that before it's in orbit the more prepared you're going to be the more relaxed you're going to be when it actually comes time um to operate to operate your your cubesat um the other thing that i think was you know it was important from more of these systems level tests was um is is kind of going back to the the structure that we had on github is saving making sure that you're saving your output like your command terminal output somewhere reliable whether that be on github or on like a google drive um because when you're in the operations phase you're not no matter how many hours you've spent like there's going to be things that like you're going to have to go back and recall and so it's really important to make sure you have like that data saved somewhere so if you encounter issues on orbit and you don't exactly remember you know what's going on you have this command terminal output to refer to to say oh okay yeah these processes are are being executed and like this is what we should expect to see and so you know it's it's probably fine um like recording that, making sure you have knowledge of like, what are your nominal values? Um, how long should it take to perform certain operations? Um, all of that is really, really important to track during your systems level test, because once your satellite's gone, you're never, and you don't have an, an engineering unit, a full flight like engineering unit or flight equivalent engineering unit, um, you are never gonna get to try those things again. And that was the case for us because we ended, at the end, we only had one OBC. Um, and so once we delivered Phoenix, we, you know, we could never go back and, and test anything or debug anything. So, yeah. So it's expensive just to get the craft in space, but can you imagine how expensive it would be to convince ISS to rocket one of us up there with our laptops and go on an EVA and catch the satellite and reprogram it? Yeah. Honestly, I would love to personally volunteer to just be like the astronaut that goes and takes care of CubeSats. It's like a little, like <laughs> the tiny CubeSat mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you just like go around to all of them and you can like plug in with a laptop and go, yeah, these are your diagnostics. Bring <laughs> it back down to earth. That'll be like the dream job though. <laughs> oh yeah. But yeah, for, for sure. I think the importance of, uh, you know, getting, uh, everything recorded i think that's very very key and i think that brings us back to the whole documentation part because i mean i'm sure like even even the things that i worked on i don't remember the specific details of every single bit and i had there was like numerous times i had to go back and check what did i do five months back uh and stuff like that so i think that's that's very very important that you log everything in as much detail as possible that just saves a lot of time and effort if you really put time into documenting what you did in your GitHub issues and what you saw, what resulted from your changes, like 
and you do that as you go, documentation really isn't that bad. And you are making sure that you have, you know, thorough traceability for everything that's in your CubeSat. Um, and so, yeah, you know, when it's five months long and you're like, what did, you know, why did I add that thing five months ago? Mm. Um, or, you know, what is this? You always have something to refer back to. And that's, that's so important. Uh, I think one final note on systems level testing is that, you know, just in addition to testing everything as a system, the amount of time that you test for is also fairly important. Um, so like, we would test for full days as well to just see how that ate up system resources and to see if it, you know, anything eventually broke. Um, and so really what that entailed was that we would just keep running different schedule files that did uh, executed different things with you know, different time constraints in between them, but really keeping everything as flight-like as possible and um, just seeing, seeing what that did. And, looking back at the telemetry and the event logs the next day and through downlinking them instead of just pulling them off of uh, the computer directly and, and seeing, you know, what had happened when we were away doing that really makes you feel comfortable knowing that your system is, is really working just fine and it's going to work fine in orbit. It's yeah. a lot for us. It was a lot easier to do that with our flat set as opposed to when it was fully assembled. So making sure that you're getting all of that systems level testing in like as early as you possibly can and well before you're, you're buttoning everything up um, allowed, allows you to just do a lot more with the system. And in general, um, the, the amount of time you spend testing really can't be understated or the amount of time that you should spend testing. Um, I can say that in professional software development, the, the amount of time that you, the ratio of testing to development is about three to one. Uh, yeah, it's, it's big. Yeah. And it's, it is, it's so hard to balance that uh, when you're a student too. And, you know, you have all of these other things going on. Um, but, and, you know, I think that's where having, having a team becomes really handy because then you can kind of like split up the day to where maybe the beginning, like some, at some point during the day, someone's in the lab testing something. And so there's either constant development or constant testing kind of going on and, and um, it makes it a lot easier to, to kind of iterate and find those issues early but still make sure that you're kind of going about things as efficiently as possible. And so, right. yeah, that's kind of, that was more of the groove that we kind of got into towards the end was like, you know, we were just constantly on the OBC and, um, you know, someone would, would be testing their stuff and then they'd get to a stopping point. It would switch to the next person and they would be testing and then uh, testing theirs, fixing something, running it again. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think this reminds me of one thing. So we already spoke about the importance of uh, having the central repository with issues and everything, along with documentation. Uh, but there's one more thing which I think towards the later part uh, that we implemented that really helped us get back on schedule was the uh, the Excel sheet, which was like the uh, issue tracker of sorts, uh, and that basically tracked all milestones because. Uh, what what we realized was that uh, 
if you have GitHub issues, that is really good when it comes to documenting all your issues. But eventually, like the branches, you reach a point where all your issues, you, you have like a lot of issues. You have like 20, 30 issues, sometimes even more. And you don't know which one is important. So it, I mean, I remember at one point I had 10 issues uh, assigned to me or like directly indirectly assigned to me. Uh, now, to be able to keep track of all 10 issues is rather tedious and you don't know at a glance which one is uh, more uh, applicable uh, and which one is on a higher priority. So this is where what we did was we basically created like an Excel sheet where it tracks all the issues that are there in terms of what is the priority, what's the, uh, who is assigned to it and when we need to finish this by and if it's dependent on anything else. And this I think was helped in two ways. A, it helped uh, people know what, uh, what are the things that is currently assigned to them. And second, uh, track, so pro, sorry, provide uh, a sort of, uh, you know, visibility with uh, people like Danny and uh, Judd who wanted to know what's going on in the project to figure out where the team is and when they would finish what they are supposed to do. So I think, uh, you know, there you, you, you could mix and match all of these different uh, uh, strategies in order to ensure that uh, A, the team is doing what they're supposed to do and B, they are doing it when they're supposed to do. Yeah, thank you for thank you for mentioning that. That yeah, that is actually pretty huge, um, and that definitely it, you know that was one of the tools that definitely kind of took our requirements and, and objectives and really laid them out. So things didn't seem so broad and everything. Once we had that, and like once we had the demos and we had like a direction, like development just got so much easier and um, a lot right. more straightforward, I think, for everybody. So yeah, that's that's a good thing to bring up. You know, um, that's so many issues and needed a therapist. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. Yeah, I didn't didn't know whether to laugh or to tell you to keep your day job. So, <laughs> um, all right. So, kind of, I guess, segueing off of of that, uh, segueing off of that final thought. Um, so we we've talked a lot about development challenges and just development in general. But another like really big part of development, and I think one of the areas where, you know, we, we really probably learned the most um, just in this project in general is really just like working with people, especially in working with people uh, while, you know, developing software and, you know, coordinating schedules and, and, and kind of getting everything to work. Um, uh, yeah. So <laughs> one, of, one of the biggest lessons learned was really just working with people, especially people who are, interdisciplinary because um, you know anyone working on the software has to understand the context of what goes into develop of has to understand the context of what it of why that software is being has to be developed you know the certain way so like if you're working with the radio for example um, you you're dealing with these packets as they come in. Those packets have headers for, you know, which are come from communications protocols like Axe 25. Um, and we don't want that in, you know, whatever message is going to the onboard computer. So you have to, you know, you have to work with 
um, the comms team in order to understand, okay, what does this packet look like? What's the actual data portion that I need? Uh, and how do I forward these on to, to our OBC such that, you know, it's, it's in the final file or configuration that we need. Um, and then, yeah, in general, you have to understand, you know, the hardware that you're working with and, and what's required to, to really make the system functional. Um, this, this reminds so, me of one bit, which I'll just add here, uh, then you can continue. Uh, this reminds me of the time, you know, you're, you're talking about collaboration and it reminds me of the time when I had to, uh, you know, work, I was working on the downloading of uh, telemetry files and I needed to work, figure out uh, how the telemetry files are named. And I think Cody was working on that at that time. So the fact that we had this document, which helped us, help me figure out okay who's working on it and try to work with him what the uh, file naming convention was so that so that i could you know put that into my uh, code and that could uh, download the whole thing so yeah it definitely definitely helped uh, that way yes you know something that i noticed throughout um, our project when it came to the team dynamics right was that uh, we had a lot of fluidity in our members, right? Or the word turnover seems really harsh, but um, you know, the nature of it being a student project was that uh, it was not people's priorities. You know, I mean, it may have been the priority towards the end in the summer when you have no classes, you know, you just need to get the dang thing delivered, right? Um, or at the end of the semesters when your finals are over and you just need to crank out as much as possible. Like if you look at our commit history, it's really sporadic. And then there are these massive spikes um, corresponding to the ends of semesters or, or something like that when we have this time, right? But um, in, the, in the interim, school is priority, right? I mean, it's what, it's what you're there for. It's what you're paying for. So naturally, because of that, you're going to get people who you're, you're going to have a lot of people who may not be there for very long, right? And may, uh, may come in and then pop right out. We had a few semesters of that where our, our team just like exploded. And then, you know, by the end of the semester, it was the exact same size because the exchange people came in, realized like, holy crap, this is difficult and dropped off. Not because, you know, the thing's too hard or whatever, but it's just, it's just such a drain on time and resources and brain power that you need yeah. to be spending towards your classes, right? Um, and so something that I personally, uh, feel that I didn't do very well as a lead, you know, or I did it well-ish sometimes, but could have done a lot better. Um, and what we could have done better as a team was valuing each other and, you know, more overtly, more team building. You know, I remember using it. I remember, um, I remember thinking that team building was nonsense, <laughs> um, right? You know, just like stupid teenager me, you know, who thought that team building was just a complete waste of time, like all those exercises or whatever to get better because, you know, teammates I thought it was just, just nonsense. Um, but it really, really matters, right? Um, uh, having those quality relationships with the people that you work with are incredibly important to keep uh, everybody working together, communicating really well, and keeping everyone happy. In uh, you know, companies know this, and and it's incredibly true in our case as well that human capital is very expensive, 
And we're not just talking about expensive as in terms of money, right? We're talking about expensive in time, in uh, effort, in quality of work product. Uh, it is very, very expensive. And when you have those quality people, you want them to know that they are appreciated, right? And everybody here and everybody who's on the team uh, is really, really quality people. Um, and there were a few times, you know, we were like, uh, you know, let's go out and get a, let's go out and get a drink after a day's work. Let's go out and have dinner. Like, hey guys, let me buy you some lunch. You know, that sort of stuff. We did well, um, but I think we could have done more of that. I think we could have had more more team building that wasn't just focused on the work. I mean, like, it is fun to to pull an all nighter and work on the camera. It's fun to pull an all nighter uh, on the roof, um, but uh, all work no play makes Jack a dull boy. Or, like that. Yeah, I think even though we didn't have that, I we all we all got along. We all got along really well. Oh yeah, um, and I we're I think all workaholics. One thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and and you know stuff like that is hard too when you've got stuff on your plate. You have your classes. You have anything else personal that's going on, and you know in addition to this project. And so, but I think one thing that that really helps is that when we were developing, we said you know you know every day from like six to ten or or you know whenever you can come in these are our lab hours and really for the most part like a lot of people showed up during them and that's when we got a lot of really great work done because we were the the key thing with that was that you know we were all in the lab at the same time just trying to get things to work solving problems together having you know having discussions learning from one another on different programming methods and you know in that like we we joked around um we we had some great fun um and we all just bonded even even though you know it's you're sitting there and you're coding um but we were all working on this project that we were really enthusiastic about and that we really loved we really believed in and cared about and um we were doing it together uh and and you know during that process we we're still able to have like friendly conversations and, and yeah. laugh and uh, figure out how to get used to the the edges fan that was in there that was incredibly loud and just insanely annoying. So yeah, yeah I think I think that's one thing that helps with you know, situations like these when when you're you're a student and yeah. every you know it feels like you're cramming all of the stuff into your schedule. So no, I think it was fun. You know, like we didn't have anything explicit like a team building per se outing but uh, for sure i mean i remember the countless memes that we had floating around the uh, lab everything from uh, yeah from dumpster fire and how you know, things are going wrong and <laughs> yeah we had we had those moments definitely and um, we didn't go out for team uh, outings but we stayed in our, in the lab late enough for all our CC parties to get over and the caterers coming to us and going like, we have leftover food. Do you guys want it? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my God. Leftover, <laughs> leftover event food was like, God, just the best. It is the best. Yeah. <laughs> we even um, got a, yeah. I mean, That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, like we, we found ways when you're working on stuff like this, just having as many people in the same room as, as possible. It really, doesn't only help with just team milling, but it really helps everyone just understand the system that they're working on um, because they're around people who are working on different things and you overhear things, you get into conversations 
you learn things that you didn't know before. Um, and so, you know, in terms of keeping people informed and um, having good camaraderie, having those like dedicated lab hours, I think really helped us a lot when it, when it came down to the grind, everything. Yeah. You know, this is saving grace, I think. Hmm. Taco Bell was right across the street. <laughs> and it was open 24 yeah. seven. Yep. So at 4 a.m., Devin and Trevor and I go out and get Taco Bell, come back, do a little more work, and go to bed. Yeah, Taco Bell was like staple food at that time. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I tell you, I, I haven't eaten Taco first. Bell since. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> Actually, you know what I think the saving grace was when Cody bought that small coffee machine and put it in the break room. And labeled and... it label maker? Yeah. And was that why the label maker was labeled coffee machine? Exactly. No, it was it was already it was already labeled coffee machine. And I don't know who put that there, but then he bought a coffee machine and labeled it label maker. (laughs) But so Craig, you brought up something that I I wanted to touch a little bit more on. Um, So student turnover in these projects is is high. And it's high for everybody. And it's it's high because of the reasons that you mentioned you have school and it's not, you know, project like this, you really like you're, you can't require just 10 hours a week from it, uh, especially when you're working on software and you have to be there to test things out and sit there and debug your code. Cause like your code's not going to work the first time. Yeah. And there's so many other features that have to be implemented along the way. It's, it's a lot of a lot of man hours. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And if you're signing up for a project like this, you have to understand that. And you have to be willing to commit to that. Um, because that's the only way that your CubeSat is going to get to space is if you have a team that's really dedicated to making it work. Those are the, the those are the people who are going to get it to space. So working working with people in that regard is is hard. And it also makes recruitment very hard. So we to, to continue with that thought for a while, we were doing interviews like, you know, Craig, you mentioned you came in through an interview process and, and we did that thinking that that would, um, you know, kind of, that would allow us to keep people who are really interested and um, would be willing to stay and put in those hours because we knew that, you know, if they interviewed and they seemed like they were really enthusiastic and, you know, really interested in the project, then, um, then maybe we wouldn't have that problem. Mm-hmm. And really the, but the issue, I mean, recruitment will, will allow you to find a lot of great people, um, but it's a lot of work. It's a huh. lot of time. It's <laughs> Oh, like, I know. Cause I mean, just the interviews themselves, like they take, they take days or well, depending on however many people you were interviewing, um, like, when we ah, did it, yes, it would no, take each individual. Sorry, just to clarify. Each individual interview does not take days, but all of the yeah. interviews take a process of days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, like inter- interviews take a, a very long time, and um, the issue that we found is that you know we put all of our time in recruiting because we wanted to make sure that we hired, we brought on good people, and that we were we were training people who were going to be reliable and stay. Um, but even if if people are very qualified, even if they're enthusiastic, like Craig, like you were saying, school always comes first. And mm-hmm. people, even if you tell them that like, you're gonna be putting in like 15 to 20 hours a week into this project, even if you tell them that, 
they do not understand it oh, until yeah. they are actually doing it and they mm -hmm. see it. Yeah. Um, and that is what freaked, uh, I don't know if it like freaked people out, but that's def that's the part when people really say, I do not have time for this and they leave. Mm -hmm. So now what you've done is you've spent all of your time interviewing people and onboarding them, bringing them into the project and they stay for only a couple of weeks. And when you're onboarding people, that's consuming resources from your team who is supposed to be developing and testing, um, but has to, you know, now forego that because they have to make sure that they're getting the new people up to speed. So it really, we found, essentially we found that interviewing had a negative impact on schedule and productivity. And it really didn't get us anywhere in the long run. We met some pretty cool people, um, but it, it so, really didn't get us so anywhere. I have a question here. So since I wasn't part of this process at that time, what would you say would be a takeaway? Like, how do you avoid this situation? Oh, well, well so, I mean, like with interview, wait, what? What's the face? Uh, the, the face is I don't agree at all. I had the exact opposite experience. The, the times I was there, the two times that we did recruitment when I was there, the first one we did very intentional, right? I mean, I constructed a pitch. I got people to come in for interviews. The interviews were long. <laughs> um, like each individual was pretty long. And, you know, I learned from that. I wouldn't do that again. Um, but, uh, you know, the, they were composed of quality questions, I think. And they got people's brains to engage and to really show what they knew. And it, it really clearly separated out the people who, you know, had very bright minds and, um, you know, we're really enthusiastic in all the qualities that we wanted and those who, you know, may have had bright minds, but maybe just weren't a, a fit um, for the culture of the team, you know, and from those, the interviews that I did, th that, that little section of interviews that I did, we got some really quality people that lasted base, almost the whole duration of the project. I mean, we got Trevor from those interviews. Um, we got his name because I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying Caesar, Caesar, we got Caesar oh, from those yeah. interviews and Caesar was up huge asset to the team um the only reason that caesar had to drop off is because he had a i had like a full-time job or an internship or something like that but he contributed great amounts and then and then i um the next round we but those didn't people would have come on even if there weren't and if there wasn't an interview process true uh, yeah so That's you are what... correct um I just had a worse experience the second time around because we just let everybody come and then so many people dropped. So there's a little bias there then that I'm tripping mm -hmm. over. And I think, I think you're right. Even though I had, I felt I had a good experience with interviews. You're right. And those people would have come on anyway. Um, and I believe, you know, their passions would have stuck it out and, uh, and they would have stayed around. So perhaps that devotion of time and effort into those interviews wasn't warranted. Yeah, that was, um, that was, that was, I think, what, you know, what we found when we explored both options, both doing interviews and, you know, the second, the, in the later half, so this is like fall 2019 and onwards, um, we, no, I lied, that's, <laughs> that's after we delivered. So this is fall 2018 and onwards, um, we stopped doing interviews because we didn't, you know, we just had to focus all of our resources on development. We didn't have time to to do these anymore. Right, right. And we just said, you know, if you're interested in, in programming a satellite, come on to the team and, you know, we'll, we'll get you started on something. Um, 
But when we did that, we did rec- we did onboarding differently than we did the first time around with interviews. So with interviews, once we onboarded people, we were like, okay, these guys are going to stay. And basically we spent a lot of time making sure people were brought up to speed. And that's where most of the effort went. The second time around, the the key change with onboarding was that people were responsible for engaging themselves and completing onboard tasks themselves uh-huh. uh, because it was so so the the point with that is that if people wanted to really stay and they really wanted to put effort in they needed they had to show it and you guys didn't necessarily have the bandwidth to give all of your resources to just to onboarding like you needed to keep working and so we would give them like a kind of a lower level task of they had to complete like a CFS app and once they got that working then we would give them you know the next task and usually there were a series of smaller ones we would you know see who stuck with it and like who who just kind of phased off uh who maybe needed pushing a little bit and the people who would complete like the lower level tasks were the people who we knew wanted to stay and who we knew would be reliable and so once we saw that they completed these small things kind of on their own and they were really demonstrating that they were dedicated then we would give them larger tasks like contributing to issues yeah for sure i think you know the biggest like things uh, uh, some people stick some people don't because even when i think that's you know it's, it's just people's preferences and their commitments and stuff i just this this was like too cool for me you know so i came in and i was like i have been interested interested in uh, space ever since i was in high school <laughs> yeah nothing was going to stop me so yeah i mean i it was i think the i think it's very important uh, to gauge people's interest and their commitments and that's something uh, uh, i don't know how much you can do with interviews but it's either people stick or don't stick and that's a risk we have to uh, live with during the entire uh, phase so yeah so final question what is a favorite memory that you have from any point in the project can be related to development can be unrelated to development um, i have one tell me your story but okay. i think I, th- i think i think it's go, and go, you go. you guys will definitely agree on this the years months you spend on this project and then you ended off with the whole trip when we went to virginia and we saw the rocket take off that moment i think it it just you know in that moment it sort of flashes back the amount of pain you've gone through the the fun times you've had the crazy things you've done in the past to get to this point and you just see this rocket in front of you take off and seconds later you can hear the rumble of the engines and they just leaves I'm replaying it in my mind now. I'm mm-hmm. like I, I'm like I'm mm-hmm. hearing the, the mm-hmm. engines um, it's pretty great. That was I think that was that was the most fulfilled one feels. I think it's worth all the hassle you go through the entire entirety of the mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like Vivek said so okay, so uh watch that thing like literally it's just is like this just 
uh, okay, so like sound travels travels slower than light, right? So like you see the plumes come out of that rocket before you hear anything. And the rocket's like, um, you know, got this long beam of light underneath of it as it's like, it's it's gone through like a hundred feet of climb before you even hear the engine start, right? And like, then you hear that, and it just like fills your chest. And like, I, um, my sister had given me her iPhone to take a video of it for a class, but like, I was like, there's no way I'm getting a good video of this with the, this thing. So like it, it's going up and it's probably gone through like 500 feet at this point, you know, and it's just like all that stress and tears, and just a heartache and just pour into that rocket. And it's all just rocketing out of the atmosphere. And <laughs> I just, I just cried. <laughs> I freaking broke down weeping. It yeah. was, um, yeah, that was great. That was really, really great. Yeah, I think that was probably one of like the happiest days of my life. Um, so I, I think really for me, what was my f- favorite? So I guess you know, on on the the topic of seeing the fruits of your work, like actually, you know, take off. To, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, my favorite memory from the project is. I'd love the launch, but for me, it's deployment. Um, Not only because like we got to watch Phoenix deploy from the ISS as a team in, um, in the Marsden exploration theater, that was incredible in itself because like you're like, you're watching your CubeSat and you can see it like falling back towards the earth. And it's, you know, just this eventually it just becomes like this little speck, but the best part of deployment was seeing the beacon. Yeah. <laughs> so CubeSats have this 30-minute silent period between when you deploy and when you're allowed to actually turn on your transmitter or deploy any of your appendages, uh, antennas, solar panels. And so after that that 30 minutes, that's when your transmitter is officially allowed to start sending out health beacons. And so like that 30 minutes, you know, it's really worrying because you're just wondering, oh, you know, like, is it is it going to be working? Or, are we going to hear anything? Um and 30 minutes later, I got this notification on my phone. It was an email from uh, someone in the amateur radio community who had heard Phoenix's health beacon. And I remember on opening up that email and, and looking, at, um, looking at the data. And you can see the call signs in, yeah. in the header. And it, it, you know, that's indicating that it's coming from Phoenix. And... Just the most incredible moment was just seeing that and, you know, wrapping your head around the fact that like this is in space and it worked. Like we actually got something from it. And I remember like, I I just, like, I looked at that and I just like cried. I cried for like Mm -hmm. 10 minutes straight or something like that because I just like could not believe that after all of that work, you know, this is, this is where we were. Um, and then eventually I, I was like, okay, I should actually analyze this data and make sure that you know, it's telling me that the CubeSat's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I need, need to like get over, yeah. get over this now. And, you know, I remember like Vivek, you and I were, were I, communicating I, and I, I think we had a pass at like, I, was it yeah. five in the morning or seven in the morning and so we're we like yeah i'll meet you in the control there. room and let's <laughs> no, yeah I, I specifically remember this part so we had a we had a, a good pass at seven 
and we had a map us at like five something right yeah. and we got these messages and we were like you know sarah was like should we go there and i was like i'm on my way <laughs> <laughs> i was I'm like okay i'm going to drive I'll, i'll drive there and i'll try to see through my tears <laughs> I'll see you in five. <laughs> and we reached. We reached. We were like, we going to be there, you know. We didn't. Of course, we didn't receive any packet during a five o'clock pass, but uh, the seven o'clock pass we did. Yeah, and I think that like the elevation was like nineteen degrees or something. Yeah. It was really small. So like we knew we weren't going to see anything, but we were like, yeah, we're going to go. We anyway. just wanted to be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so but yeah, and then and then throughout the day, more trickled in and. You know, it was like, ah, oh, you know, it's not a one-off thing. Like, it still works. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then throughout the day, we were able to, like, uplink schedules and, and try out those actual, uh, those maintenance commands that we had developed on the ground and, you know, now actually when the CubeSat was in orbit. So, um, yeah, deployment deployment was definitely, definitely that, like, the happiest day I think I've ever had in my life. No, I, I mean, I, I would say this, that, you know, see just the fact that you work on something and that uh, goes into space. So everything from the launch to deployment is just these, these steps which tell you that you know, it's, it's, it's out there and you've created something. It was, it was lying on a table uh, a few months back. And we were like fiddling with it and we were like playing around, blew up some components maybe, like fixed some, you know. But at the end of all of that stuff, we have this piece of hardware that that we literally built ourselves and is out there in space. I think that's something that's just crazy uh, motivating for me. And I think everybody on the team that, you know, you get to work on something that's literally out of this world. Yeah. <laughs> What a gift. Yeah. Thanks for accepting me, Sarah. Thank you for listening to that man in the trench coat and <laughs> coming for an interview. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, I think the big thanks to even all those people who helped, like include definitely the entire team, Sarah, you, uh, I think uh, even Jared, Danny, the way they, they showed us support. I think that's, that's, that was also very important. And also all the, all our vendors, right. Even from, uh, people who helped us out debugging all our uh, uh, specific hardware issues, uh, you know, replacing things if it broke down. I think it, it all builds up to this experience. People from the amateur community, the radio community, they all helped us a lot when it came to uh, the whole journey from start to finish. So big thanks yeah. to everyone. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know who's listening right now, but um, if uh, anybody from the, the team is listening, um, and anybody who was ever on the team in any capacity, thank you so, so much for contributing what you did. I, I mean, honestly, like, I don't know how many people have told this to, but like, I've just, I got, I don't know how the heck I got so lucky with all of you guys. I'm like, I'm just, really, I think we just, we had like the greatest team that I think anyone could have had on this project. And yeah. Oh, Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. And thus the tales of our flight software development are complete. Thank you all so much for listening in on this episode. And now you know that Phoenix is powered by lithium ion batteries and operated based on the fruit of several cups of coffee and undergraduate student tears. 
If you want to learn more about Phoenix, you can visit our website, and I'll put a link to that in the description. In addition to describing the spacecraft and the science objective, the website also includes various resources that we use to develop Phoenix, along with documents that we wrote along the way, such as our proposal to NASA, licensing applications, and design reviews. If you have any questions on what we've discussed in this episode, or if you're developing a CubeSat yourself and you just want to talk about our experiences, please feel free to reach out to us. We are more than willing to help anyone who's looking for it. Why can't I read this? And hopefully sharing our lessons learned and experiences allows others to make faster and more efficient progress and explore or test things in even more depth than we were really able to. So huge thanks again to Vivek and Craig for sitting down with me today to recount what it really took to make Phoenix work. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you want to support it, please share these episodes with your friends who may be interested in them. And don't forget to follow this on your favorite podcast source and on Facebook to get notifications on upcoming episodes. Finally, as always, your feedback is greatly appreciated so that way I can make this podcast as useful to you as I possibly can. For more content on the art of space engineering, tune in every three weeks when I'll post a new episode. With that, here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers. Sarah.